while in the body, whether good or bad. Well, tonight we're talking about something that you do find interesting, you. Next week, what's wrong with us, what's wrong with you, but this week, what are we? And maybe you think that's obvious, I'm, I'm me, but actually the way that we think about ourselves has, is totally new in history. There's now a crisis in our self-understanding. For example, the last 50 years have revolutionised our thinking about our nature and our purpose, things like gender, identity, sex, but these changes, they're unstable, they're inconsistent, and we're starting to see that they are hurting us bringing about despair, hopelessness, narcissism, and ever-increasing anxiety and depression. Think about all the progress that women have made, and there's lots to celebrate there, and yet one study that analysed a bunch of research discovered what they called the paradox of declining female happiness. Since the 1970s, women have become less happy not men, but women. More than that, we've seen the destruction of families, the destruction of faith, the destruction of community, and much of it, not all of it, but much of it traces back to changes in the way that we understand ourselves. We're like the frog in the pot of water that's slowly boiling. We're not noticing the change even as it kills us. Now, apparently that's not true. Apparently the frog will actually jump out of the, the water, but because they'll notice that it's getting warmer. But have we noticed? The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So this Sunday and then next, my hope is to point out some of the patterns of the world that are different to the Bible in the doctrine of humanity. Normally we, we preach about God, not ourselves, but the Bible does actually have a lot to say about us because it affects the way that we relate to him. And in the passage we just read, Genesis chapter 1, it states the big thing that we're going to see tonight. Look at verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, the main view in our culture at the moment says, no, 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 we're just animals. We're very advanced animals, but they disagree with that verse there. But we're going to see three things that the Bible says that are far more life-giving than that, far better than that, that make more sense, that are more stable, more clear, and actually more liberating. We're going to see, number one, that we're not just animals. We're made in the image of God. And that means we're not free to just define ourselves however we like. There's actually an order to, to who we are. And thirdly, that that's actually really good news and it shows us the best way to fulfill our humanity. So let's ask God for help. Heavenly Father, these are contentious things in our world. Give us humility to hear the truth from your word. Enable us to understand it and believe it and bring life through these precious, beautiful truths. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, what is a human? The main view in our culture is that Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, is wrong. Our culture says that humans are just animals. We're, we're very, very advanced animals. And, and that is what most people today think, isn't it? It comes from the, the scientific perspective, or so it's said, from those who hold particularly to evolution without a God. 
And I actually want to use this book, Sapiens, to engage with it because he's really captured the basic view that people hold. This book has been phenomenally popular, a number one bestseller, recommended by Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and even Barack Obama. And it really hit a nerve because it captured what people think, or at least what they'd like to be true. You can even hear it in the name Sapiens. That's the, the name of our species. He's saying we've evolved from a common ancestor between us and chimpanzees, and we're just another species. Now, at some point, he says it was 70,000 years ago, we evolved to be so smart that we now dominate all other animals because we can communicate and form communities and pass down ideas. And that's basically the story of humanity. Now, I want to be clear up front that my disagreement is not with the evolution bit. Now, some Christians believe evolution and some don't. And that's fine. I think if you're careful... You can hold either view and still fully believe the Bible is infallible. But there is a problem with the just another animal part. And so what I'll do is I'll show some implications of that view and then what the Bible says and why that's better. Actually, first, let me make an aside. It's worth knowing that this book is not actually written by an evolutionary biologist or an anthropologist or an ancient historian. He's a historian of medieval warfare, so the last 800 years, not the thousands of years before that. And so it's, it's good to know that this book has actually been quite heavily criticised by those who are experts. Um, a professor of anthropology called Christopher Hallpike said, he often gets things wrong, sometimes seriously. Now, science journalist Charles C. Mann has a problem with the book making claims that aren't backed up with evidence. And historians have found problems as well. I've given you some of them there. But don't get me wrong, it is a good read. We'll get rid of those quotes. But don't get me wrong, it is a good read. But there's a very strong bias, especially against Christianity and against the Bible. He's got an agenda. And I think he misrepresents some of the facts, perhaps, to get it across. So don't believe everything you read, even in a bestseller. But it is good to engage with, and the reason I've chosen to engage with it now is because it really does represent what people think. And I loved it, actually, because he unpacked it so clearly as he explained that we're just animals. We're very, very advanced animals. And the other thing I loved was his courage to put into words what that actually means. For example, he says this, from a scientific viewpoint... Human life has absolutely no meaning. If we're just bacteria who evolved, that means that there's no such thing as a meaning to life. We, we can make up our own meaning, but it's just that. It's, it's made up. It's not a real meaning. It's just in our head. Whereas what we'll see uh, in a moment is that the Bible says God made things with a purpose in mind. Life does have a meaning. Um, here's another one. The idea that all humans are equal is a myth. There's a quote from the book, in what sense do all humans equal one another? Is there any objective reality outside the human imagination in which we're truly equal? Are all humans equal to one another biologically? That's what he says, that the whole point of evolution is survival of the fittest, which implies that we're not all equally fit. We're not all grandmasters of chess. We're not all equally fast. That's the whole point of the Olympics. And if right now you're going, no, we are equal, 
then you're not getting that from evolution. There's nothing in evolution that teaches equality. Where are you getting it? Well, on this one, Sapien hits the nail on the head. Look at this quote. The Americans got the idea of equality from Christianity, which argues that every person has a divinely created soul and that all souls are equal before God. However, if we do not believe the Christian myths, what does it mean that all people are equal? Evolution is based on difference, not equality. You believe in equality because you grew up in a society that was taught the Bible. And yet our society is right now rejecting the Bible. We're cutting down the tree that we're sitting in. If we're just animals, equality is a myth. There's one more implication that he spells out. He says, there are no such thing as human rights. Here's what he points out. There are no such thing as rights in biology. There are only organs, abilities, and characteristics. Birds fly not because they have a right to fly, but because they have wings. If you and I are just advanced animals, and if animals are at the end of the day just atoms, then your rights are not real, they're pretend. That's what he says. His word's not mine. He, he says, um, actually he says that it's helpful to believe in rights. They're just not real. It's like society works better if we all pretend that you have rights and I have rights. But deep down, we know we're just pretending. No wonder people in our society feel free just to get rid of old-fashioned rights and make up new ones. But how long can pretend rights protect people, really? Uh, if you look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God says that it's wrong to murder a human. And here's the reason he gives. It says, for in the image of God, he made mankind. The Bible says human rights are not pretend because you were made in the image of God. As a human, there's a dignity, a sacredness about you that no one can take away, which means that there are ways that you should be treated and ways that you must not be treated. So like equality, the truth of our rights comes to us from God in the Bible, but Sapiens very helpfully points out that if you abandon that, if we're just advanced animals that evolved through the blind forces of nature, then human rights are pretend. Now, is that really what our world believes? I reckon there are two camps. Some are fully on board. Yep, we're animals. Rights aren't real. And the rest, they only go halfway. They go, yep, yep, evolution, we're just animals. Ooh but I still believe in evolution. Oh, sorry, I still believe in equality and rights. So what's going on there? Well, they think that they've gone with the science without realizing just how much actually comes from the Bible through its influence on our culture. And so there's a contradiction there in their thinking that they may not have realized yet. But can I suggest that the other reason they haven't gone all in, they haven't gone all the way, is because deep down we know that the Bible is right. There is something special about humanity. And so let's look at the Bible's view. It's a better picture and it gets us right. And there are three things we'll see. Number one, we're not just animals. We're made in the image of God. 
And number two, that means that we're not free to uh, to define ourselves however we would like. There's actually an order to who we are. And thirdly, that that's actually really good news. And it shows us the best way that there is to fulfill our humanity. So let's unpack that. Number one, we're not just animals. We're made in the image of God. Look with me at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. That is an incredible truth. Humanity, you are not an accident and you're not just an animal, you're created. And not like any other animal, sorry, animals are created, you're different in this way, you're created in God's image. And that is something that's not said about any other animal. There's something unique about us as humans. Now, what is it? What is the image? Some have said that it's our unique abilities as humans. Maybe it's our intelligence, our rationality. You know, dolphins are pretty smart, but they're not big readers. Is it our ability to create, to design? You know, you you might see an otter take a rock and use it as a tool to crush a shell. But what you don't see is them gradually improving that tool over the generations as they pass the knowledge down. The book Sapiens actually says that no other animal has our language skills. Could that be it? Could it be the rich relationships and communities that that enable? We are uniquely social. Other animals can coordinate, but not with the same finesse that we can. One of the world's leading experts on chimpanzees, a guy called Tomasello, says that a chimp would never cooperate with another chimp the way even a two-year-old child can, a human child. Add to that our morality, our conscience, our spirituality, our will. We are uniquely gifted compared to animals. So is it the abilities that we have that mean we're in the image of God? Well, no, not quite. But they do make us suitable for it. So what about the soul? Because the Bible says that you're not just a body, you have a soul. Not one you'd find in surgery or in a brain scan. It's not physical, it's spiritual. But the teaching that you have a soul comes up all over the Bible. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is particularly helpful. Flick over there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And while you're flicking, I'll set it up. Paul uses the metaphor of clothing or a tent to refer to the body in which the soul lives. And he says, verse 8, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, that it would be a good thing to leave his body and be at home with the Lord. Death of the body is not death of the person. Your soul survives. And if you're saved by Jesus, then you go to be with him. And that is better than life in this broken world. But what's really helpful about this passage is how he makes clear that that's not even actually the best that it can be. See, some philosophies teach that the physical is bad, but the spiritual, that's good. And the goal is to kind of be set free from the physical world into the spiritual world. But Paul says, no, no, no. That's not, what, that's not what he's hoping for. Verse 4, he says, While we are in this tent, this earthly body, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed. 
We don't just want to be souls floating around, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. For our soul, he means, to, to be reunited with our resurrection body and once again clothed. Think about Jesus. In his resurrection, he wasn't just a soul. It wasn't someone else's body. It was him. It was his body. And what that means is that God's plan to save you includes both your soul and your body. It's not that your soul is the, is the real you and it's rattling around in this body that's not really you that you'll one day get rid of. No, no, no. You will be you in the new resurrection, body and soul. Now, your body will be transformed, but it'll still be your body. Now, that has implications for how we think about things like gender. Our bodies are actually relevant to who we are. And that means that what you do with your body matters. Be holy. And listen to C.S. Lewis. He says, I know some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity thought that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions that thoroughly approves of the body. Food and sex... And bodily pleasure are good things, says the Bible. Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good. You don't just have a body, you are a body. But don't forget that you're also more than a body. The view that says we're just animals can't address our spiritual hunger. The Bible says you've got spiritual needs as well. Have you been caring for your soul as well as for your body? All right, so, so our soul, is that what it means to be made in the image of God? Well, it's definitely connected. It is relevant that we're spiritual beings. But what's the problem? Well, it leaves out our body. Well, the, the, what we want to say, what, what the Bible suggests is that the whole of us, not just part of us, is made in the image of God. But we are getting closer and we get really close when we look at what he's put us on earth to do. What if the image is not just something in us, but a role that he's given to us? You see, in the ancient world, they said that the king was the image of God. The king was the image of God. Why? Because he represented God on the earth as he ruled. Now flick back to Genesis 1 where he takes that idea and says, you know what, it's not just the king, it's every man and woman. In Genesis chapter 1, immediately after verse 27, where he makes us in his image, verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the sea, over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Humans are honoured with the role of being God's representative on earth, of ruling it in his name. The image of God is more than just a thing in us. It's a relationship. It's a unique relationship between God and us and creation. If you flick over to Genesis 2 verse 15, he says it again. But this time he uses the words to work and to care for the garden. 
So this is not a license to trash the world, but to love it, to use it, to cultivate it, to enjoy it. Now, the word for that is stewardship. We're put in charge, but we're accountable to the one who made the world and who loves it. And so the final thing to say about the image of God is that the best answer is actually found by looking at Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus was the perfect human, the true Adam and the perfect image of God. Particularly, it's his character, his goodness, his loving and righteous and holy. And in that, he's perfectly like God. So put it together, we are made in the image of God in that we are uniquely suited by our abilities as all of who we are, body and soul, to represent him and rule his world in loving relationship with him and his creation, living like him in his goodness. Wow! What an identity! What an honour! Psalm 8 that Soph read so well for us before. Just celebrates. What an honour to be given this role. Which raises the question, doesn't it? Have I lived up to it? The obvious answer is no. This week we're looking at who we were made to be. Next week, we'll get to the effects of sin. But we'll go there just for a second. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. Now, does that mean that we've lost the image? Well, Genesis chapter 9 that I mentioned before comes after we sin. And God still says, verse 6, don't murder. They still carry my image. And so the image of God in us has been damaged, but not destroyed. We still carry that value, though we fall short. And that's why he still loves us. That's why he, Jesus, came, the perfect human, to succeed where we failed, to perfectly live like the Father in all his goodness, and to go to the cross to pay for our failure so that his success can be counted as our success. So that when someone turns to Jesus, they're forgiven. But they're not only forgiven, he gives them his spirit to begin the process of renewal and the Holy Spirit begins to remake in us that which was lost and conform us once again to his likeness. If you want to truly fulfill your identity as a human, be like Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? One day the Bible says we will be like him in heaven. You see, even from the very beginning, God's intention was for us to live with him in loving relationship forever. And so come to Jesus if you haven't. You're not just an animal where to die is the end. And let me apply some of this to ourselves. It means that we are equal. 
Regardless of our gender or our gifts or our job or our race, we are all equally made in his image. We do have rights and responsibilities, actually. But our rights are real because we have value regardless of our achievements. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 31. He says, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now, it's not that God just doesn't like birds. In fact, two verses earlier, Jesus says, not even a sparrow falls to the ground outside of God the Father's care. God loves and cares for his creation, even a sparrow. But it means that as valuable as animals are, humans are more so. We're unique. Made in his image. Now, there's a a philosopher, a famous philosopher named Peter Singer, Australian actually, and he holds the the we're just animals view, the same as in Sapiens. And here's what he says He says, Human babies are not born self aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time, they are not persons. The life of a newborn human, he's talking about, is of less value than the life of a pig or a dog or a chimpanzee. And so he's a vegetarian who has said that it's okay to kill babies up to a month after they're born. Don't eat meat. Do kill your living baby. And why not? If it's just the animal's view, if that's true, then why not? Except that it's wrong. My three-year-old can see that it's wrong. She said to Monique this week, Mom, babies are people too, you know. Listen to Jesus' words tonight. You're not just another animal. You are worth more than many sparrows. Did you know that there's a test when you get pregnant that the government pays for to find out if your baby has Down syndrome to give you options? In other words, to give you a chance to end that life. Now, the vast majority of people born with Down syndrome live very healthy lives. I don't know if you've met any of them, but they are beautiful people. What does it say about them? about their value, that more than 90% are not allowed to be born. I'm sorry if this is touching something that's real for you. It's not the unforgivable. Still love, still forgiveness, still grace. But the message that this is sending to them and actually to us as well is that you don't have value Unless you're good enough. Unless you reach the standard. Well, what will that mean for you when you get sick? When you get old, your value will go down. That philosophy is evil. The Bible says, no, your worth is not based on whether you're good enough. It doesn't come from what you accomplish or your abilities or the awards on your wall or the number on a paycheck. It's in who you are 
Even in the sickbed, you are made in God's image. You're able to glorify God as you love Him and His world. And so there's the first thing to know. You're not just an animal. You are made in the image of God. Now here's the next one. The next two go much more quickly. The next one is that there's an order to who we are. We're not just free to define ourselves however we like. Now this will sound restrictive, but it's actually liberating. Let me first of all explain what I mean by an order. You were created into a world that has a certain order to it. And that was actually the the revolutionary message of the book of Genesis. Sometimes we get distracted by bringing questions to the passage that it's not trying to answer, like how long did it take? That's not its message. This is actually why I think the days in in Genesis chapter 1 aren't literal days. They're there to make a bigger point. You see, the religions at the time saw the world as a chaotic result of wars between the many gods. And Genesis chapter 1 says, no, 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 there's one God. And in peace and order, he crafted a beautiful and good and ordered world. And so if you look at the days, you get three that separate and three that fill which speaks to a purpose and a plan. An order is established. Now that might seem obvious, but let me state the obvious because our culture is right now telling us there's no such thing as that order. There are different types of things. Days one to three, he separates. Dark and light, earth and sky, water and land, they're different And then the different kinds of things have different purposes. So verse 15, the sun and moon are for purpose, for giving light. And verse 29, the plants and the trees are for food. And chapter 2, verse 15, the man is put into the garden, as we've seen, to purpose, work it and take care of it. Do you see that there's an order there? Types of things and purposes of things. And that order is not imaginary. It's not just something we made up. It's woven into the very order, the very world that God has made. Now let me illustrate this. Humans have two genders, different types of things. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, male and female, he created them. Now that's not teaching stereotypes, that's not saying boys are blue, you know, blue is for boys and pink is for girls. But it is saying that there is a difference between male and female. They're not just made up categories. They're created by God and we're not free to change them or to pretend they're the same thing. Now, that's clearly got implications for transgender questions. And can I ask, rather than assuming you know what I would say on that, that you tune in next week. We'll, we'll, We'll raise it then. But do you see that because we're created by God, that means that we're not God? which means we can't just make up what it means to be a human. We're created into a world that has an order to it. And to live well in God's creation means to listen to what he says about it. And that sounds restrictive, but let me explain why it's liberating. We've got some friends, Tom and Chloe, and they've got a boat. That's the best way to own a boat, have friends that own it, because they've got to clean it, but you get to use it. Uh, so they took us sailing, and, and we were heading into Brisbane water past Umina. I don't know if you've ever sailed there, but there's a very tricky section. It's quite a wide river, but there's just this very, very narrow channel where it's safe to sail. And on the surface, it all looks quite similar. So they put these green and red poles. I can never remember which one you're supposed to keep on which side, but if you keep that color on that side and that color on that side, you stay in the channel and you make it and it's safe and it's all good fun. That's a picture of our world and life in our world. It might not be immediately obvious. 
but there's a shape to things under the surface. That, that river bottom is the order. There's a shape to life. And you can say, I don't believe those poles. Look, it's a wide river. You can sail wherever you like. Well, sooner or later, you run aground and you, you maybe even do some damage. Let me give you an example. I'll talk about sex. Not because it's the most important thing. It just happens to be a very good illustration of a thing that has an order to it. The Bible says sex is for enjoyment, but more than that, it's for God's glory. It's for marriage, for the intimacy and expression of the, the, the union between a husband and a wife. And it says that sex is for having children. It's not just the result if you're not careful, it's actually the purpose. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we saw it. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Chapter 2, verse 24, often read at weddings, A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh, which is not just about the oneness of the marriage, one flesh. It's not just about the intimacy of sex. It's literally the binding of two people together in one child. Now, I want to be clear, that's not the only purpose of sex, but it is one. Sex and marriage are for having children. And that has implications, because we should use things for what they're for. Now, this is why Catholics have historically been against contraception. Now, this church is not a Catholic church, but it's worth knowing, because actually their view on this one is not as different to ours as you might think. Catholics think that sex is for having children, but contraception blocks that, and that's wrong because what you're doing there is you're taking the gift and using it without paying any attention to the purpose for which it was given. That's wrong. Now, Protestants, which is what we are, have tended to disagree with Catholics on that conclusion because we think it's actually the sexual relationship that's for having children, not, ne not necessarily every single act of sex. And so contraception is okay, but you can't plan to never have children in a sexual relationship. Now that's worth knowing, isn't it? If you're dating or thinking of dating. From the Bible's perspective, if you decide to get married and begin a sexual relationship, which they go together, you're deciding to have kids. That is, if you're able. And and that explains the deep grief that many feel if they, they find they're not able. And be sensitive around that, actually, can I say. You don't know the pain that people might be carrying. But know this, that, that children are not a secondary decision that you make later. It's not, will we get married and then later we'll work out if we want kids. It's a meal-deal combo. Christian men and Christian women, let me speak to you about this. If you get married, God's will for you will be to welcome children as you're able. And if you're not up for that, don't get married. You might even have second thoughts about beginning the, the whole dating thing if you're not prepared to go where it leads. Don't walk down a road if you don't like where the road is going. Now, I've spent a while here, not because it's the most important thing about us as humans, though it's not nothing... Why have I unpacked it? Because I think it's a very clear illustration of what I mean, what we mean when we say that there's an order to our lives. And here's the thing. 
Our culture has separated sex from marriage and from children and actually from any sense of specialness whatsoever. And we're beginning to see, aren't we, that that actually doesn't work. The, the consent crisis, for example, this is from the Sydney Morning Herald, which, if you haven't picked up, is not a Christian publication, saying 50 years ago, we were told not to be so prudish about sex, don't have so many rules about it. But actually, in the last few years, researchers at an Australian university have made the quote, earth-shattering discovery that males and females have, quote, different preferences based on their biology. In other words, men and women want different things from sex. Let me oversimplify. Men want, com uh, men want conquest. Women want companionship. Men want a good time. Women want a long time. Now, both genders actually do care about both those things, but not to the same degree. But they say, this is all what they're talking about, they say that biologically, men want to spread their DNA as wide as they can, whereas women who get stuck carrying the baby are hardwired to want someone who will stick with them to help. And this article points out that when we took the rules away from sex, we removed the need for commitment. And guess who that benefits? The modern dating scene is full of men who treat women like trash. Now, I'm not saying that women don't enjoy sex and all of those things. What I am saying is that what's happening in our culture is not good. I've read stories, books, autobiographies. I've read stories of women in our culture who are trying to get the men to grow up and take responsibility and commit but instead, the men get what they want and they move on. They don't grow up, they date younger. And the women just have to wait until finally one will settle down. It's not good out there. Now, I'm sure, they're having, I'm sure there's fun to be had along the way. But the long-term reports are that it's deeply unsatisfying for both genders. If only there was some way to help men connect sex to commitment. Well, what about marriage? 50 years ago, they said, we don't need that. It's oppressive. Hey, it turns out there might have been a reason for it. The research is starting to show that this way is not working. There's an order to these things. You ignore the red and green poles, you, you hit the rocks. And that brings me very briefly to my, my last point, that God's word shows us the best way to fulfill our humanity. It turns out that the less people that you have sex with before marriage, the happier you are. It turns out that married people have the most sex and enjoy it the most. That the most satisfied couples are the highly religious. That people who go to church regularly are more likely to report being very happy. And in fact, religious practices correlate with better mental health living longer, and a whole bunch more. Time and time again, the teachings and principles of the Bible are being validated. Humility, generosity, thankfulness, these weren't virtues. They were hated in the ancient world, but taught by the Bible and now being shown by research to be good for us. We don't need the research. 
No, no, no. This is exactly what you would expect to find if there's an order to the world. There's a shape to the bottom of the river. And right now, in the area of sex in particular, our culture is sailing right over the rocks. And people are getting hurt. Those red and green poles, they're not restrictive. They're marking a safe channel in which to sail. You know, I reckon the reason books like Sapiens get popular is because they tell people what we want to hear. There's no God. There's no order. Do whatever you want. And it sounds like freedom, but there's no hope in it. There's no meaning to it. There's no value. And then, of course, there are the rocks. It says in the Bible, there's a way that seems right to humans, but its end is death. The, uh, the, the just animals view. It offers, offers no hope. It offers no meaning. It offers nothing. There's better news than that. So don't believe the lie. You were made in God's image. There's value. There's an order to who we are. You don't have to make it up. Listen to God's word as it shows us the best way to fulfill our humanity. And especially look to Jesus, the perfect man. Live like him and trust in his death for us so that we will live with him forever in heaven where we will be like him forever father we thank you that you have given us such an honor to love us what is mankind that you are mindful of us the son of man that you care for us yet you have made us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor and set us over the works of your hands we pray please that we will live in line with your word in jesus name amen